0: welcome
1: i am your host and this is the unanswered questions podcast Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavor to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about Tommy Burkett. When he died at the age of 21, Tommy
2: Burkett was a junior at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia, just down the road from Washington, D.C., Tommy's parents lived some 20 miles from the campus. His mother, Beth George, was an instructor there.
0: I thought I left the lights
2: on. Tommy! On Sunday, December 1st, 1991, Tommy was at home after the Thanksgiving holiday. Tommy! His parents had been out for much of that afternoon. When they returned to the house at about 6 10 p.m., Tommy! they confronted an unimaginable horror. Tommy was upright on the sofa in his bedroom. He had been shot once through the mouth. A revolver rested in his hand.
1: No, don't go in there. I'm going to
2: call 911. Virtually from the moment police arrived on the scene that night, they have insisted that Tommy Burkett committed suicide. Case closed. But Tommy's parents, Beth George and Tom Burkett, have amassed compelling evidence that their son was, in fact, murdered. They have pieced together a chilling scenario that they claim implicates officials from both the Fairfax County, Virginia Police Department and the United States Drug Enforcement Agency. Tom and Beth's suspicions began within minutes of discovering their son's body.
1: So Tommy Burkett was a student at Marymount College in 1991 but on Thanksgiving weekend he was found dead in his parents' Virginia home. On November 30th of 1991, 21-year-old Tommy left his parents' home in Fairfax County to visit an old schoolmate in Centralville, Virginia. His friend lived approximately seven miles from the Burkett's house. Tommy arrived at his friend's house shortly after 8 p.m. At 2 a.m., Tommy called his parents to let them know that he was staying over at his friend's house and would be home around noon to attend the family's scheduled outing. At 11.45 a.m., Tommy's parents left their home to run an errand. As they were leaving, they heard the sound of tyres squealing, though they did not see the cars. Witnesses later confirmed that Tommy's blue Mustang was seen being chased by a large, dark car. The Burkitt's neighbours later claimed that they'd heard and witnessed Tommy's Mustang being chased through the neighbourhood by a dark sedan on the afternoon of his death. At 5.10pm, two witnesses reported seeing Tommy's Mustang being driven to the Burkitt residence by a white male. It was too dark to see if the driver was Tommy, but he would not exit the vehicle until the witnesses went inside their house. 20 minutes later, the dark sedan was seen parked in front of the Burkitt home. Now, his mother would say, and I quote, several neighbors reported seeing tommy's car being chased by a larger darker car one neighbor saw the cars coming and he thought this is serious it's life or death another neighbor reported that one of the cars involved in the case at one point drove through someone's lawn tommy's car was apparently run off the road and he was assaulted he got away from his attackers and made it back to our house End quote
3: several neighbors reported seeing a car chase tommy's car being chased by a larger darker car one neighbor in particular had a very clear recollection he said he saw the cars coming and he thought this is serious it's life or death another neighbor reported that one of the cars involved in the chase at one point drove through someone's lawn Um, tommy's car was apparently run off the road and he was assaulted he got away from his attackers at that point and made it back to our house
1: after his parents returned from their errand they were surprised that he was not yet home they waited for him until 2:45 pm and then left to attend a poetry reading an event which he had promised to go to with them while Tommy's parents were away, witnesses claimed to have seen a dark sedan occupied by a white male parked three houses down from the Burkitts, blocking the entrance to their street, Murakirk Lane. It stayed there for approximately 20 minutes. Later in the afternoon, it, unoccupied at the, this time, was seen parked in front of the Burkitts' house. There was no lights on inside indicating that someone was there. At 5.10pm, Tommy's blue Mustang was seen going westward on Murrakak Lane. It then came to a stop in front of the Burkett's house. The driver, an unidentified white male, idled in it until all the neighbors had gone inside their homes. At 6:10 p.m., Tommy's parents returned home and observed his unoccupied Mustang parked in front of their yard. Upon entering, Tommy's father found his beaten body sitting upright on his bedroom sofa and facing the room's door. His feet were crossed at the ankles and his hands lay in his lap. His jaw had been savagely broken and his right ear was a bloody mess of tissue. His father observed his torn clothing as well as multiple cuts and bruises. A gun lay positioned in his limp hand and he had a gunshot wound to the head.
3: I went over close to him. And I knelt down beside him. And uh, I touched his hands, and they were, they were stone cold. It's going to be all right. But I just kept saying over and over right. that everything would be all right, um, and that we would find them. and. That we loved
1: him. However, one very odd aspect, when Tom grabbed the 357 Magnum in Tommy's hand, he noticed the gun's cylinder was unlatched, meaning it should have been impossible for him to fire. Because in order for a revolver to work, the cylinder has to be latched, otherwise it won't function. Look
0: at that gun. Something's not right.
1: In the emotion of the moment, Tom picked up the revolver.
2: He was surprised to find its cylinder unlatched. Surprised because a gun could not have been fired in that condition.
1: Now, Tommy's father called 911. Shortly thereafter, two ambulances were seen heading toward Murakak Lane with their sirens on. Now, this is where it gets really weird. Witnesses saw the first one turn down a street adjacent to Murakak Lane and stop by the curb. People got out and retrieved something, we don't know what, from a small ravine and then drive slowly away without their sirens on. Now, interestingly enough, the Burkitts would later discover footprints leading from the back door of their own house down towards the ravine, though no cast was ever made of them and the ravine was never searched. The second one proceeded to the Burkett's house. EMTs examined Tommy's body and advised his parents that he'd been dead for several hours. Then, against procedure, they left both his body and the scene of the crime. Next, a Fairfax County police officer, Daryl McEachurn, I'm sorry if I get that name wrong, arrived at the scene and without ever even having seen Tommy's body or crime scene, announced to his Greek-stricken parents that, and I quote, college students kill themselves all the time and don't blame yourself, end quote. Don't blame yourself.
3: I, I blame responded, myself. I don't blame myself. And he said, well, I've seen hundreds of these suicides and there was nothing you could have done.
1: Without an ounce of investigation, nor having seen his body, this officer had already concluded on his report that he had committed suicide. The lead detective, Thomas Linz, again, I'm sorry if I get that name wrong, insisted that Tommy had probably killed himself only minutes before his parents arrived home. Linz also showed the Burkitts a supposed suicide note, which he claimed was in Tommy's pocket. The words, and I quote, I want to be cremated, end quote, were written on an old bank deposit slip, but the Burkitts were certain it wasn't Tommy's handwriting. To my knowledge, no handprint tests were done to find out if it was Tommy's handwriting or not.
2: The lead detective arrived and went up to Tommy's room. According to Beth and Tom, he soon emerged with an old bank deposit slip. I have something to show you. On one side was a note which said simply, I want to be cremated.
0: This is Tommy's handwriting.
4: The Fire and Rescue Squad said Tommy's been dead for hours. No, that's not true. It just happened. Probably happened while you were coming down the street. I was dumbfounded at that comment because it didn't take a medical person to recognize that Tommy had been dead for several hours. He was cold, he was stiff, blood had dried. Any layman would have said several hours.
1: There was also the fact that after Fire and Rescue had left, and before the detectives had arrived, Tommy's mother claimed that a single policeman had entered the house in a hurry and left again for no discernible reason.
3: After Fire and Rescue left, the uniformed officer entered the house immediately, and he was in a hurry, which I thought was strange because my son was
1: dead. There was also the fact that Tommy's glasses, wallet, and driver's license were missing, and all of this just didn't add up for the family. The Burkitts noticed that Tommy's glasses, wallet, and driver's license were missing from the house. When Tom called the bank to cancel Tommy's ATM card, he learned it was used at an ATM in Centerville shortly after midnight on December 1st. When the Burkitts contacted the bank to obtain photos from the ATM's camera, Detective Lynn subpoenaed the bank for the security tape and kept it away from the Burkitts for seven months, even though this was supposed to be an open and shut suicide case. When the Burkitts finally obtained the photos, they showed three white males walking behind Tommy at the ATM and heading towards his car, though the footage was not clear enough to make out their faces. In an apparent act of gross negligence, no attempt was made by the FCPD to preserve the crime scene. No police tape was put up. The scene was not photographed nor dusted for prints. No samples of blood were taken, even though the pattern of the blood splatter was inconsistent with the position of Tommy's body. The bullet from the wall behind his head was not removed for ballistics, nor was the gun examined. No blood was found on the bullet. No casts were made of the footprints in the Burkett's backyard. Tommy's Mustang was not searched for evidence, trace evidence, or dusted for prints, even though, witnesses saw an unidentified man park the vehicle in front of the Burkett's yard at a time when Tommy was already dead no note on record was made of the staging of his body and additionally, no note on record was made of his broken jaw, battered ear abrasions, bruises and torn clothing a second autopsy discovered these injuries Major Art Mabry is
2: a
4: spokesperson for the Fairfax County Police The gun was processed uh, an autopsy was conducted photographs were taken, a a thorough and acceptable uh, crime scene uh, was conducted. To the police, the facts
2: spoke for themselves. Tommy's death was an open and shut case of suicide. But the facts told a different story to Beth George. She was certain her son had been murdered, the suicide staged. It was not just the unlatched gun and the suspicious note. Tommy's glasses, wallet, and driver's license were missing. Tommy's body was exhumed for a second autopsy. The new findings added to their growing belief that Tommy had been murdered. The second autopsy revealed that Tommy had unexplained
1: abrasions, bruising around his right ear, and he had a broken jaw. Additionally, the neighborhood was not canvassed for witnesses, which I find really bizarre. And when witnesses did approach the officers, they were told that they, the FCPD, did not want to hear it. Two other neighbors reported seeing a peculiar incident at
2: around 5.15 p.m., a time when paramedics said Tommy was already dead. One of the witnesses was willing to appear on camera.
3: Um, what I remember about that night, um, is that another neighbor of mine was coming um, over to my house. And she observed a car going around the cul-de-sac. It was Tommy's car. And it was going around the cul-de-sac with no lights on. And he was not driving in his normal manner. And as soon as she arrived at my house, she immediately relayed the story to me. You know, We commented about it for a while. We stood out on the porch and chatted for a minute. And whoever was sitting in the car did not get out of the car until after we went inside. We thought it was very strange that no one had contacted us from a law enforcement agency to find out if we did indeed know anything or not.
4: At the insistence of the Burkettes, uh we did go and talk to all the, all the neighbors, uh, but no information was developed from those discussions that would Uh, changed the uh, information that led us to believe that it is a
1: suicide. When another ambulance arrived to take Tommy's body away, Officer Nathan Laney unabashedly laughed at his parents as his body was moved at 7.06pm. The detective in charge, Thomas Linz, told his father to clean up the mess. Quote. In addition to the crassness of the detective's remarks, this action is in blatant disregard for the need to preserve the crime scene. Cleaning up the mess would, in fact, destroy crucial evidence. The last officer on the scene was Daryl McEhern, he, the officer who told witnesses that he didn't want their statements, prevented Tommy's parents from inspecting his Mustang and told them that they, the FCPD, had already done so, even though it was not inspected, let alone dusted for blood or prints. Officer McEhern then ordered them to go back in their house and said that he would say a pray for them as he drove away. By 7.06pm, all rescue personnel and officers, except Officer McEhern, had left the scene. Strangely enough, and I find this to be particularly strange, while Tommy's body was transported away from the house at 7.06pm, records at Fairfax Hospital showed that it did not arrive until 8.30pm, even though it should not have taken 84 minutes to travel there. This discrepancy has never been explained. Tommy Burkett was a junior at Marymount University in fall of 1991. During his fall semester, he was reportedly harassed by students Philip Howley, the son of a police officer, and Donald McEwen sorry if I get that name wrong, the grandson, as it turned out, of a Marymount University trustee. The harassment ranged from theft to vicious assaults. On November 16th, Philip beat Tommy so badly that his swollen face was unrecognisable. Now, the reasons behind why these students so viciously assaulted Tommy has never really been satisfactorily explained, and it's never really been established why they beat him so severely, and it seems odd to me that they would just do this without a reason for doing so. Campus security failed to report the assault to the Arlington police, and Marymount University officials refused to give copies of the security incident report to the Burkitts after Tommy was found dead on December the 1st. Marymount University official Nancy McMahon reportedly told staff not to talk to them. Incidentally, on December 3rd, she presented them with Tommy's driver's license, which had been missing when his body was found, claiming that a student had given it to her. She refused to tell the Burkett parents who gave it to her. Two days after Tommy's death, his parents went to his dorm room to collect his
2: belongings. Come in. Oh, Mr. Burkett, Oh, you have my
0: condolences. Thank you. Oh, uh, by the way, a student
2: found this. How did you get this? Oh, uh, well, I'm sorry. According to Tom and Beth, school administrators refused to provide any information about the student who had turned in Tommy's driver's license. It was another unanswered question. To add to a growing list.
1: It was later learned that it had been Philip Howley. Now, why he was in possession of Tommy Burkett's driver's license has never been established. But one would think that if he was in possession of something that he shouldn't have had, such as a driver's license, that he had no need to have possession of, because obviously him and Tommy weren't friends if he was beating the hell out of him, I would have been asking questions of well how come you seem to have something that you normally wouldn't or shouldn't have in your possession but this was never done philip howley to my understanding was never investigated nobody ever talked to this guy and it was if he just appeared in this case and then disappeared police never talked to him campus security never talked to him the burkett parents as well as me when they were alive we're convinced that he had something to do with it, and I'm damn sure that Philip Howley and his other little cronies had something to do with the murder of Tommy Burkett. Otherwise, what was he doing in possession of Tommy's driver's license, which he should not have had? It's not as if you're just going to give someone your driver's license and say, oh, here's my driver's license, just hold on to it for me, we are. Like, that's not something that would happen. Eric Holes, director of campus security, also refused to give the Burkett's copies of the incident reports maintained on Tommy's assault. He told them, and I quote, We're not going around asking questions. We're not going to do anything that would hurt the reputations of other students involved in this, end quote. Which is a really weird thing to say. I mean, honestly, you've got a kid that's been killed. Under very mysterious and suspicious circumstances and you're going to say that to grieving Burkett parents really like that is amazing how they would rather savor the reputations of other students involved rather than oh we've got a murder investigation let's get to the bottom of this and leave no stone unturned in this case it's like let's make sure that we keep as many stones not turned over and many stones left unturned as possible there's another interesting aspect to the story, which was, according to the Burkitts, McEwan was the only person outside their family who knew about the three-five-seven Magnum, and ammunition safe in their bedroom closet. Now, how this kid knew about this outside of the family has never really been established. I don't know whether he came over to the house one day and saw it, or whether Tommy may have mentioned it. I don't know. I never was able to find out exactly how McEwen found out about the gun itself. But the, the other thing, too, is that unless you actually knew about it being there, you wouldn't know it was there. So obviously whoever killed him knew the gun was there because the gun that he shot himself with was the three five seven Magnum that was in the bedroom closet in the Burkitt's home. So whoever killed Tommy killed him with a gun that they knew was there. So McEwen was most likely there with Philip Howley. But then again, this is all just supposition at this point it's all what if in conjecture we can't conclusively say or I can't conclusively say they were there but based on other cases I've done if you don't know that something's in the home then obviously it had to have been somebody who knew that it was there because if you don't know that it's there then you're not going to go oh there's a gun in the closet I'm going to go grab the gun you wouldn't do that if you didn't know it was there so I honestly think that M- McEwan and Howley should have been talked to and investigated, interrogated, interviewed about their knowledge in this case, but the police weren't interested in doing that. In fact, from what I'm to understand, the police weren't interested in doing anything in this case. They wanted to bury this, and I can't understand for the like of me why. It, It seems so strange. You've got police that don't want anything to do with this case and laugh in the parents' face there's no investigation that's done, no forensics that's done, mostly all the investigation that was done was from the parents, and I mean, even Detective Linz, as I said, withheld a tape for some seven months. What on earth was he holding the tape for? I mean, you know, seven months, that's a long time in an investigation. If this was an open and shut case, what is he withholding evidence for? And how the parents were able to get that from him, I don't exactly know. They did eventually get it, but I don't know how. Again, that was never explained. But what, you know, and, and what exactly did Tommy get involved in, is my question, that would precipitate the police covering it up, the coroner's office covering it up, which I'm about to get into, and also the university. Like, the university, you know, McMahon didn't want... She didn't want to help. Nobody at the university was interested in helping. What the hell was going on at Marymount University that they wanted to keep buried? And what were the police so scared of? The, the thing about this case that gets me is, I think that they were worried about wherever this was going to lead to, they didn't want to follow the leads to wherever this was going to lead to because i honestly think that there was something that tommy stumbled upon that he shouldn't have he saw or did or seen something was involved in something you shouldn't have been that led to other people there were there were obviously leads the police did not want to follow and other people in positions of power did not want to follow because they were scared of where it would end up and what they would uncover it's the only reason because I can't think of any other reason why you would have a whole police force that or police department doesn't want to investigate this you've got a university that doesn't want to have anything to do with this and refuses to help the 911 operator which again I'm going to get into and I'm sorry for foreshadowing also won't help and then you've also got the DEA, which won't help. Again, I'm foreshadowing a little bit and I'll get into that as well later in this podcast. All these departments don't want to help and you're basically left sitting there twiddling your thumbs going, well, what the hell is going on? The Burkett parents got no help and no assistance from anybody and it's absolutely horrible that they did not get any help whatsoever. Beth also remembered that on November 12th, Tommy frantically called her to say that someone had broken into his door mailbox and stolen his paycheck. Tommy was worried about somebody finding something incriminating inside his mailbox which he didn't want people knowing about but wouldn't provide more details.
2: Tommy's parents began to closely re-examine a strange series of events that preceded their son's death. It began with a phone call from Tommy around November 12th, less than three weeks before he died. Hello? Mom,
1: they smashed my mailbox and took my paycheck. They took everything.
0: Calm down Tommy. Look, uh, get in touch with payroll and tell them to stop payment on the check.
3: It's not the paycheck I'm worried about. It. Tommy was normally very poised, really very calm, and he was just um, oh. frantic. I'm not sure what was
0: in there. It's OK, hon. What do you think was in there?
3: Well, something I didn't want
1: anyone to know about. I think they found out what I'm doing.
3: And I took it to Maine that, uh, Since he was not positive they had found something out, he was not going to divulge exactly what he was worried about.
1: Shortly thereafter, Beth was approached on campus by Philip Howley, who told her to tell Tommy three guys were planning to beat him up. It was only a few days later when Tommy was physically assaulted by Howley.
2: Beth says that a few days after the mailbox break-in, she had a troubling encounter with a student on the Marymount campus.
0: Hey. Hey, how you doing? Great, how are you?
1: I'm doing okay.
0: Good. Have you guys seen Tommy today?
1: No, we oh, haven't. We haven't. But when you find him, tell him there's three guys looking to beat him up.
3: We were later told that the same young man who made the threat the next night on uh, the 15th of November assaulted Tommy in a uh, location off campus.
2: According to Beth, several sources told her that Tommy confronted his tormentor a few hours later.
1: What's wrong with you? Why do you keep doing this to me?
2: Just leave me alone!
3: We were later told by a student at the university that the young man who had Tommy's driver's license after he was dead was the same student who had beaten Tommy
1: up. Campus security filed a report and assured him that the Arlington PD would be called in to investigate the theft and destruction to campus property. However, interestingly enough, the APD was never contacted by Marymount University, the reason for which remains unexplained. After Tommy's death, members of the Board of Trustees refused to meet with his parents to aid in the investigation of his death in any way. It would also come to light that Tommy had made two complaints to a 911 dispatcher in August and October before his death, but then the dispatcher changed her story and said that in fact Tommy had never called. Beth contacted a local 911 dispatcher to find out if Tommy attempted to call them on the day of his death. The dispatcher said the logs showed Tommy did call 911 on two occasions, but the records listing the reasons for his calls had been deleted. The dispatcher put Beth on hold to speak with a supervisor, but when she returned, she told Beth the whole thing was an error. and Tommy. Tommy never actually did call 911. Tommy's mother was quoted as saying, and I quote, Well, on the computer screen, it shows his name and the time that he called and when he made two consecutive calls, but the message has been deleted. So she was gone several minutes and said, I don't know why his name's on the computer, but he didn't call 911. I know Tommy made the calls because the police department personnel told me. I know this to be a fact. I'm angry every day of my life. I wake up angry every morning that this police department did not respond to the 911. Mom calls.
0: I'm calling about some information uh, concerning my son, Tommy.
1: Beth
2: resolved to find out if her son had telephoned for help on the day he died.
0: Do you have any records of him making any 911 calls that day? He did call twice. What did he say?
3: She said, "Well, on the computer screen, it shows his name." and the login number and the time that he called, and that he made two consecutive calls, but the message has been deleted.
0: Well, How can I find out what he said? I really need to know what my son said.
3: And she said, well, uh, let me check with the supervisor.
0: Also, do you have any records of any complaints he may have made against any
3: persons? She said, uh, yes. He had filed a complaint at the end of October and and at the end end of August.
0: What was the nature of the
3: complaints? She said, well, I'll have to check with my supervisor. So she left, was gone several minutes, and came back and said, um, I don't know why his name is on the computer, but he didn't call 911.
4: I'm not familiar with, with who they spoke with. Uh, I do know that there is no information to indicate that Tommy had called 911 uh, prior to his death.
3: I know Tommy made the calls because the police department personnel told me. I, I know this to be a fact. Uh, I'm angry every day of my life. I wake up angry every morning that this police department did not respond to the 911 calls.
4: Uh, it's my understanding that the information uh, that the Burkettes came up with about the 911 call was well after the 30 days. and the tape that would have been on the machine that particular night had already been uh, routinely erased.
2: If Tommy did indeed call 911, were the official phone records innocently erased or deliberately purged? More importantly, if Tommy had called, why were his pleas for help ignored by the
1: authorities? It's even more weirder because Dr. J. Byers, deputy chief medical examiner for the Northern Virginia region, performed the autopsy on Tommy's body a day after the medical examiner report stating time and cause of death had been signed. The autopsy report listed no visible injuries with exception to gunshot wound despite the fact that his body presented with severe jaw trauma, right ear trauma, and numerous cuts, abrasions, and bruises. Contrary to standards of autopsies, Byers, when asked by the Burkitts for copies of autopsy photos, claimed that no photos had been Taken of his body, even though Byers had shown his father a photo previously. Furthermore, when questioned in a Senate hearing about a ruling of suicide that Byers had made on an autopsy conducted on the body of White House aide Vincent Foster in 1994, Byers stated that he had ruled the death of suicide based on trauma to the jaw and the presence of gunpowder residue. He then admitted under oath that in this case he had made his ruling of suicide based on the absence of jaw trauma and gunpowder residue. He also made a similar claim in the autopsy of another suicide victim. The Burketts noticed small reddish marks on the wall next to their stairway, so they hired an independent blood expert who concluded it was blood, but the samples were not large enough to determine if it belonged to Tommy.
0: Tom, come here.
2: A few weeks after Beth Tommy's death, Beth noticed a spray of small reddish marks on the stairway.
0: It looks like scattered faint blood stains.
2: But what would it be doing on the stairs? Earlier, Beth had noticed other spots near a doorway downstairs.
0: We have to have someone come here and look at this.
2: Beth and Tom informed the authorities, but no official investigation followed. Tom and Beth hired Paul Kish, a bloodstain expert from the Laboratory of Forensic Science in Corning, New York. He determined that there the we spots go. were in fact blood, though we could not determine whether it was Tommy's.
4: It's not consistent with being created from an individual committing suicide in a room sitting on a a sofa. Some other violent altercation took place where blood was shed, um,
1: with a lot of energy being exerted towards the blood, like a gunshot. Tom and Beth finally decided to exhume their son's body and discovered that he had a broken jaw and bruising on his right ear, but the injuries were never noted on Tommy's autopsy, as I previously stated. They also learned that the Fairfax County medical examiner, Dr. Donald Hort, had signed a re- report listing Tommy's death as suicide one day before the autopsy even took place. When the report was compared to Dr. Hort's signature on Tommy's death certificate, interestingly enough the handwriting clearly didn't match and it later turned out that his signature had been forged, which of course on their website, because Tom and Beth made a website that showed all of this stuff. They actually had on their website, and you have to go through the Wayback Machine to get to it nowadays, but when it was still up and running, they actually had a photo, a side-by-side comparison of the actual signatures, and they look nothing alike. They look absolutely different. Like, there's the original signature of Dr. Hort, and then there's the other signature of Dr. Hort, and they look nothing alike. Who signed it and why? Nobody knows, and to this day, it's never been explained why that was done, who signed it, because my understanding is even autopsy documents that's an official department document and I'm assuming that it's also a governmental document as well and I know for a fact that if you sign certain documents they say if you fraudulently write this out you'll either get a five thousand dollar not five thousand dollar but you'll get a, a fine or you may get jail time you are not allowed to Put fraudulent information or fraudulent activity on the document. Like if you're going for a driver's license, passport, that sort of thing. I'm assuming, but I'm not a medical examiner, I'm assuming that a medical examiner's paperwork would run in a similar vein because that would be an official government documentation that I'm assuming, and I shouldn't assume, but I'm assuming that, because I don't know, I'm assuming that it would. Be in the same vein that if you were to forge the document or any part of it that would be considered a crime that would be considered fraud- considered fraudulent so whoever did this was actually running a hell of a high risk because if they got caught forging a document like that i'm assuming they would have gotten to a hell of a lot of trouble Philip Howley and Donald McEwen, the students that allegedly harassed and attacked Tommy prior to his death, are considered possible suspects. An informant claimed that he was attacked by them because he was an undercover DEA agent and was going to expose their drug activities.
0: There may have been some indication that Tommy was involved in investigating drug activity on the Marymount campus. And that may have been one of the reasons why we still don't know to this day
3: what really happened to Tommy Burkett. A number of sources, mostly anonymous, have come to us and uh, helped us piece together a story. And in most instances, uh, their accounts corroborate each other. And what we've learned about our son was that he was a paid DEA informant. That there were a group of students on the campus who were dealing drugs. They felt Tommy knew too much and that they conspired with others to kill him.
2: Beth and Tom now believe that their neighbors unknowingly witnessed Tommy being chased by the killers. They also believe Tommy abandoned his car and made his way home in time to place the 911 calls. Then the killers burst in.
1: The has denied any connection to him, which is not surprising when scandals like this arise. However, there was a story in which Tommy was discovered with marijuana on him and was given a choice to either go undercover and uncover the drug dealers on university campus, supplying drugs and the charges against him would be expunged, or he could face being charged with drug possession, which would in turn ruin his entire life and future. The informant also claimed that Tommy was beaten to death with a baseball bat and phone books were used to minimize bruising and absorb blood spatters. What was interesting about this information was his parents did notice that their phone books had gone missing after his death, also the gripping tape on a baseball bat in his bedroom had been ripped off. According
2: to Beth and Tom, an informant said Tommy was beaten to death with a baseball bat. Phone books were used to minimize bruising and absorb the blood spatters.
3: The story fit in with everything we had noticed and could not account for uh, during the previous months. For example, we had noticed our phone books were missing the week after Tommy died. Also, we had told the police we were concerned because uh, there had been a ball bat in Tommy's bedroom, and the gripping tape had been stripped off the bat. And that had not been done by any of us. We understand the students had assistance in staging the shooting in the room from persons more knowledgeable about law enforcement and
1: crime than they were. The prevalent theory is is that th- This put Tommy's life in danger, and he was eventually chased to his house and beaten to death with a baseball bat inside his bedroom before the 357 Magnum was used to stage a suicide scene. The DEA denied that Tommy had ever worked with them as an undercover informant. The Burkitts were constantly stonewalled by the DEA, FBI, local law enforcement, and the administration of Marymount University whenever they attempted to reopen the investigation into their son's death, making them believe there was a massive cover-up. Sadly, Beth died of cancer in 2003, and Tom passed away 2006, so Tommy's death is still officially considered to be a suicide.
0: Tom and Beth have names of the students they suspect were involved in Tommy's death. Uh, There's not enough evidence to say their names publicly at this point, but I believe with some of the evidence they've collected over the past two years that uh, they may have the right people.
4: Uh it has been determined and the uh and it's gonna be maintained that it is a suicide until uh substantial credible information is brought to us. At that point we will examine all the information just as we have for the past years. Uh but again, credible information uh is what we're seeking. There's this sense of rage that nobody's doing anything. No matter how much information is dumped on the laps of law enforcement people, they don't do anything. The response is the same. Everything's all right. Everything was done wonderfully. Everything's fine. And they think if they say it enough, it'll be true.
1: It won't be. And we're not going to stop saying it's not. Next, on Unanswered Questions. Now, Hilda Murrell, as I understand it, was a British rose grower, naturalist, diarist and campaigner against nuclear power and nuclear weapons. She was abducted and found murdered five miles from her home in Shropshire. Despite a conviction based on DNA and fingerprint evidence and a confession, the case remains controversial and subject to conspiracy theories.